And thank you, Nick, for communion. Wherever he is, brought out some very good uh, points. And I think when we understand our unworthiness to partake, I think we're in a good place to partake. It's when we think we're worthy from our own efforts and our own goodness, I think we aren't aren't worthy to partake. You know, it's when we understand truly understand that that the Jesus sacrifice to atone for our sin, you know, the king that atoned for our sin will never take him lightly or, or treat him irreverently. We always wonder that he would do such a thing for us. So I thanks you for that, Matt. Um, I think we've got Children's Church today. Um, so Kitty Winkles want to come up and we'll pray. Uh, it's on. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks for these little lives. And Lord, I just pray that your hand will be upon them all the days of your life. That they would know your goodness and your grace on their lives. And I pray that any seeds that are sown in their heart today will be. Lord, you would guard and you would water and you would bring them to fruition. And Lord, I give you thanks for the words you've given me today. And I ask, Lord, that you would encourage and strengthen others as you have me. Lord, I pray they just won't be my words, but your Holy Spirit will use them for your purposes, no matter where they go. So we just ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Um, As you can see from the title, Trusting God in Perilous Times, it's it's turning out to be a bit of a series of of preaching, unintentional. I first spoke a while back on um, truth, you know, what is truth, you know, and the importance of objective truth versus the modern subjective truth. And that led on to faith, and trust, you know, and, and, and what they are. Um, and, and in that sermon, I pointed out that faith is more than believing in the existence of God. Faith is trusting him. And the thing is, you don't really know if you're really trusting someone until we're put into a situation where we must trust them. And I think we're entering a time in history when we may well be put to test on this. It is in times of trouble that will show us if we really do trust God to save us, as indeed he said he would if we would trust him to, no matter the circumstances we may be in. So the title of the sermon, it comes from 2 Timothy 3.1. This know also that in the last days perilous times shall come. So what are the perilous times Paul is speaking of here and how do we live in them? You know, when we look back in history, for Christians living in perilous times is not actually something new. 
So even though we see in the New Testament that the apostles and Paul all spoke of being in the end times, which I think you could say started at the Pentecost with the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, as the prophet Joel wrote, in the last days God will pour out his Spirit. And they fully expected Christ to return at any moment. So I think you could safely say that if they were in the last days, then we must be in the end of the last days. You know, we see the early church rejoiced at suffering for Christ's sake, for they knew that their reward would be great. We in the West probably need a bit of an attitude adjustment on this, for we often associate suffering with punishment, not reward. You know, it says in 2 Corinthians 4, 17 and 18, For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but things which are not seen are eternal. The last 200 years of church history has been a bit of an anomaly for the Christian in the West, as there hasn't really been the persecution that if you look back into church history, the Christian has had to suffer through. I do think that the Western Christian's faith has been tried and tested in other ways, with plenty and ease, with this insidious nature of sin that so easily distracts us from Christ, and the many wicked things around us that vexes us. It is all a form of persecution, and maybe in a more covert form that is harder to identify. But certainly we haven't had to face the overt persecution that many Christians in the past have faced, or indeed are facing now in many lands. I think if God allows his people to suffer loss in this world, you know, imagine that he has a very good reason to do so. And I think that what persecution and suffering does, it proves whether our faith and trust in God is real and indeed strengthens our faith and trust. Our ultimate goal shouldn't be to get through life unscathed with as many possessions as we can but our goal was to be with Christ in the land of promise. If we only follow Christ when things are good, are we not just fair-weather friends? As A.W. Tozer said, to obey when it costs us nothing and refuse when the results are costly is to convict ourselves of moral trifling and gross insincerity. If Christ in the land of promise is the whole point of our existence and our great hope, why do we cling to the things of this world as if they are our security? Possibly it's because of a lack of trust which causes us to doubt God's ability to perform that which he promised. I think what we struggle with is control, for if we re relinquish something to God, then we're not then in control 
and we are relying on another. But it's silly to grasp onto something we can't do anything about anyway. If we're trying to hold bits of ourselves back from fear of loss, then we aren't fully trusting God. We don't trust him with all because we are fearful that he may fail us, so we keep back bits just in case. If our hearts are comfortable in this evil world, then one would have to question where one's loyalties lie. If your hope is in this world, then you will be sadly disappointed. Those that seek to save their life in this world shall lose it, and those who lose their life for the kingdom of God's sake shall save it. You know, Jesus said you cannot serve two masters. You either love the one and hate the other, or vice versa. And I think these perilous times may help each make that decision of who is their master. Jesus didn't tell us about end times to fill our hearts with fear, but to give us hope in grim times so that we can endure. He said because we are his friends, he tells us the end game, so we won't fear what is happening and won't have to wonder what is coming. It's often the fear of the unknown that causes the worst fear. But it's because we are his friends, we know what is happening and what will happen, so as to stall the fear in our hearts, if we would but trust him. We know who is in charge and we know the ultimate winner. God has given the believer scriptures and the Holy Spirit so that we might have everlasting hope, and it's a hope of a future that ought to fill your heart with joy, if we would but look past the present. For the Christian has an exceedingly good future awaiting them. When we have hope for something better, then we can endure whatever may come. It's when hope is lost that you'll fall into despair. And that hope will be lost if you stop trusting in the Saviour of our souls. Knowing all the schemes of the enemy isn't necessary for salvation. It's enough to know we have an enemy of our souls that is plotting against us, and then to trust God to preserve that which is his. It's very liberating to understand that salvation is not something gained by what we do, by having to keep laws or understanding conspiracies, but salvation is a free gift from God if we will accept it. It's very freeing to understand that I am not my own keeper. Christ is my keeper. The how of God preserving us isn't our problem. He took us on, so that's his problem if we're trusting him to save us. If God fails us or is unable to save those trusting in him, then clearly he is not God. For I fully expect the God that I read about in the Bible to be able to do that which he said he would do. One thing Jesus repeatedly warned us about in the end times was deception. 
So what deception was he talking about? The main warning, I think, was a warning about following false messiahs and being led astray. We need to be careful when things are grim not to be looking here or there for false messiahs, but to wait for the true Christ to come for you. For he said he will come for his bride. Is holding on to him in faith that will keep us from deception. Jesus said, My sheep know my voice and will not follow a stranger. So it's knowing Christ that will protect us from deception. He wasn't talking about having to know all the plots and schemes of the enemy so you won't be deceived. Understanding all the conspiracy theories and scheming going on isn't necessary for salvation. Our salvation is from faith in Christ alone to save us. It's his problem to bring us to eternity. God knows their scheming and plotting and laughs in derision at their plotting against him. As much as we like to think we're the centre of the universe, we aren't, and the ultimate plotting of man and devil in all this is against God Almighty, even if man does not recognise this. As Chuck Misler used to say, mankind is both the pawn and the prize in what is ultimately a spiritual battle for the souls of men. The one thing that man and devil don't take into account with all their scheming is that God is still on his throne and is still in charge. The creation is not more mighty than the creator. God is so ahead of the game that he has already told us a long time ago how the end times will play out. You know, God has a devil on a leash and he can only do what God allows until God's purposes are fulfilled, as so clearly seen in Job. Then all, including the devil, will bow the knee and will acknowledge that Jesus is indeed Lord. We can do this the easy way and gain, we can do it the hard way and suffer loss. Either way, you'll be bowing the knee before the Lord Jesus Christ. One thing to be watchful of is being so careful to not being deceived by trying to understand all the conspiracies that we end up being deceived because it's distracting us from Christ which is the whole point of the devil's deception. For if you separate the sheep from the shepherd, then the sheep are easy prey. It reminds me of a time when we were on Inter-Island Ferry. There was a magician entertaining the passengers by doing tricks. Now watching him, I was thinking, what an amateur. For we could all see him trying to slip cards and things down his sleeve and then pull them out again. Even the kids could see this. But then from his other hand he pulled a big bunch of flowers. We were so distracted by the clear deception that we missed what he was really doing with his other hand. So far from being an amateur, I thought he was very clever. And this is the sort of thing I'm talking about. So distracted by the obvious, we missed the point of the distraction, which is deception. 
trying to understand all the conspiracies and counter conspiracies and trying to work out who's right and who's wrong will only end up tying yourself in knots and so distract you that you begin to doubt Christ to bring you through all this and to let those things so fill your heart with fear that you will then begin to doubt God's goodness, his trustworthiness and his ability to fulfil his promises. Even if we could understand all the conspiracies, there isn't a thing we can do about it ourselves anyway. So as Jesus said, there's enough evil today to keep us occupied, so let tomorrow take care of itself. Or even better, commit your tomorrow into the hands of the one that can take care of our tomorrow. We are not to fear tomorrow, but to entrust our tomorrow to God and to enjoy whatever good he gives us today. You know, one good conspiracy theory I heard is that the COVID jab is filled with nanoparticles that go into your brain and builds in an antennae so that the devil can control people using 5G to do his bidding. Well, the devil doesn't have to build an antennae in your brain to control people, for he already has control of them through sin. Jesus said, who you serve is your master. So if you serve sin, then you're already in bondage to the devil and are under his control. For the Christian, through the blood of Christ, we are free from the bondage to sin. We are under new management and are the servants of righteousness. And we can have full assurance of God's ability to keep that which is his. Remember that God knows who are his. Jesus said that no one can snatch my sheep out of my hand and no one can snatch them out of my father's hands who is greater than all. So even if the devil is trying to build an antennae in our brains, which I doubt, for he doesn't have to, for he already has a his atene and sinners' hearts. God isn't going to let the devil snatch his sheep out of his hand. That much is certain. God's not going to let something that is committed to him for secure keeping be robbed from him. I know I'm safe in Christ, for God has invested his son's life into me and he will not let man or devil rob him of that investment, nor will he allow me to squander it. So though it may seem a bit Calvinistic, once saved, always saved, what I do know from experience is that God will not let his go easily. So don't fret or worry overly, for God is good and we are his, and surely that is all that matters. The thing we must always remember as Christians and all this craziness we see around us is not to be so distracted that we forget the blessed hope that Jesus promised to return for those who are looking for his return. As Paul said, If God is for us, who can be against us? For I am convinced that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, 
nor things present, nor the things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And that list pretty well covers anything we may face. We need to, as Christians, to understand the great depth of God's love for those that are his. As Paul said in Romans 5, 8 to 10. But since God shows his love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us, since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. For if while we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by his life. We are beloved for his sake. And if we must suffer in this world, then I think God must have a good reason to allow it. We just have to trust him. And isn't that what trust is? If he died for us to save us from sin, isn't he going to save us no matter the road we must walk and bring will bring us to the Father? Isn't that the whole point of salvation? Take heart in what Jesus said in Luke 12, 6-7. Are not five sparrows sold for two fatherings, and not one of them is forgotten before God? But even the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, ye are more of more value than many sparrows. The Christian ought to have no fear of physical death, for Christ has already overcome death, and the cross means we have no fear of eternal death. So whatever happens to the Christian, our future is bright, and our hearts ought to be full of hope, and hope for something better will help us endure whatever we must until the promise is obtained. Some would say that not understanding what is happening in the world is burying your head in the sand. And it would be if we were pretending these things aren't happening. But it's not burying your head in the sand if you are committing these things we have no control over into the one into the hands of the one who does, and trusting him with these things we cannot do anything about anyway. You see, if Charles was going out and she thinks it might rain and asks me to get the washing in, she isn't burying her head in the sand about the coming rain, but she is trusting another to do what she can't. As opportunities arise, and I think more and more as people start to sense that something is going on, let us not speak of conspiracies and fears or even our opinions, but to take these opportunities that will arise to speak of the saving grace of God, to speak of the good God, the good God has done for us, to speak of the forgiveness of sin and the hope of eternal life and to speak of the land of promise that sustains us in these perilous times. Let us speak of those things that give hope and not from our fears.
Though this seems to be a pandemic of hate at the moment, let us not indulge in it. One hating another for whatever particular difference there may be between us. For as Christians we are called to love one another, and even to love and do good to those who do wrong to us, and to pray for those that oppose us. And as such we show that we are indeed the children of God. 2 Corinthians 1, 3 and 4 Blessed be God, even the Father, our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comfort, who comforteth us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in trouble by the comfort we with our, we ourselves are comforted by of God. Now the reason we often don't take something seriously is that we don't really believe in it. For example, I don't really believe in mask wearing or isolation or the whole COVID narrative really, as you may have noticed. But I do it all as a token gesture and to the absolute minimum necessary to, get, to not get into trouble with the law. It's because I don't really believe in it that is precisely why I don't take it seriously or follow the decrees particularly well. I think maybe we can be like this with God. Because we don't deep down truly believe in him, or maybe we don't quite trust him, we don't really take him seriously. You know, that was a thought that caused me to stop and examine myself. So though I don't take, keep COVID regulations particularly well for the simple reason I don't believe in the whole thing, I do keep road rules far better, for I absolutely believe in them. I really believe that if I drive on the wrong side of the road, and I certainly believe that there is a right and wrong side of the road, there's a fair chance that I'll run into a truck and it won't be particularly pleasant. So I take road rules seriously and support police enforcement. For if the rules weren't enforced, there would be anarchy on the road. So it's when we truly believe in something that we take it seriously. And I think that's the reason why many don't take God seriously, is that they don't really believe in him. If for one moment people truly believe that a supreme being of unimaginable power spoke all we see around us into existence, then we couldn't help but take him seriously. You'd be a fool not to. And I guess that's why the Bible says, he that denies there is such a God is a fool. We are not to fear him that can call the body, but that's it. But fear him that can kill the body and soul in hell. And that's not the devil. It says in Luke 12, 4-5, And I say unto you, my friends, Be not afraid of them that can kill the body, and after that they have no more they can do. But I forewarn you whom ye shall fear. Fear him which after he hath killed hath power to cast into hell. Yes, I say unto you, fear him. And if you aren't in Christ, then you ought to fear and dread. But don't fear those things that can only kill the body, and that's it. 
you ought to fear and dread him that can call both body and soul and hellfire. Yes, it's the great judge you really ought to fear and dread. The horror that awaits those that reject God's mercy should keep you awake at night with fear and trembling at the thought of your coming encounter with a holy God in your sin. That fear ought to drive you to your knees to plead for mercy while mercies can still be obtained. If God does not enforce his laws, then there is no point giving them, and that is why there will one day be accounting for the breaking of his moral law. A just God must enforce his laws, or he isn't just. It's only because of his mercy he doesn't bring us to account straight away, so that we can have a chance at repentance. One way the enemy weakens Christians is to cause them to fear, and when they fear, they begin to doubt God. The thing we fear will tend to grow and get out of hand the more we dwell on it. But the more we dwell on Christ, then the greater he will become in our lives, and suddenly the giants in our lives aren't so big and our fears aren't so bad. So if the idiot box is causing your heart to fear, and is causing you to doubt and to not trust God, turn it off. You might be surprised how well you survive without it. Turn off all those things that fills your heart with fear. If you keep looking at the thing you fear, it will feed that fear, and in your mind it will grow out of all proportion to what it really is. The ten spies looked at the giants and feared, for they measured themselves against the giants and felt puny. Whereas Joshua and Caleb saw the same giants and measured the giants against the God who had promised them the land and saw that the giants were a bit puny. And that is what happens if we keep our focus on Christ. The giants in our lives tend not to look so big. They will also begin to look rather puny when compared to Christ. When you read the words of Jesus, note how many times he tells us to fear not. For he doesn't want us to be in bondage to fear, but the just are to live by faith. Sometimes as Christians, we can seem to have this thinking that God begrudgingly lets people into heaven, that maybe he's just looking for a reason to deny access. But this is so far from the truth, as Jesus said in Luke twelve thirty two. Fear not, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. It is God's delight to bring us into his kingdom, which makes sense, for he wouldn't have sent his Son to atone for sin if he begrudgingly allowed people into his kingdom. For he already had the law that was more than adequate to keep people out, if that was his intention. Far from making entry difficult, he has made a way that we can come in by gift alone, if we would but accept it. For the issue that separates man from God, sin, Jesus dealt with on the cross, as it says in Galatians 1.4. 
who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world according to the will of God and our Father. If God then has made a way for us to enter his kingdom merely because we ask for mercy, then surely he will get us there. Isn't what we're doing, isn't what we are doing when we ask Jesus for salvation is asking him to save us? And that does not only include saving us from our sin, it's saving us from deception, it's saving us from the enemy, it's even saving us from ourselves. And it's saving us for all eternity. What Jesus said to Peter when he went for a swim, O ye of little faith, why did you doubt? I think so well applies to us all at times. Why do we doubt the goodness of God? Why do we let the enemy sow the seeds of doubt that causes us to question God's integrity and his goodness? We must trust Christ to complete that which he has started, for he is the author and finisher of our faith. So when we see the crazy stuff happening around us, and our sense of security is threatened by what is happening, when we wonder about and fear tomorrow, or what tomorrow will bring, let us remember and take to heart what Jesus said in Luke 12, 22-31. And he said unto his disciples, Therefore I say unto you, Take no thought for your life, what you shall eat, neither for the body, what you shall put on. The life is more than meat, and the body is more than raiment. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which neither have storehouse nor barn, and God feedeth them. How much more are ye better than the fowls? And which of you taking thought can add to a statue one cubit? If then, if ye then be not able to do that which is least, why take ye thought for the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They toil not, they spin not. And yet I say unto you that Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. If then God so clothed the grass, which is today in the field and tomorrow is cast into an oven, how much more will he clothe you, O ye little faith? And seek not ye what ye shall eat or what ye shall drink, neither be ye of doubtful mind. For all these things do the nations of the world seek after, and your Father knows that you have need of these things. But rather seek ye the kingdom of God, and all these things shall be added unto you. So even if we lose all our possessions, let us not doubt God's goodness, for loss may well be necessary. But the amount of our possessions isn't our security or our ticket into heaven. And though we may suffer loss in this world, we will gain much in the next. You look at Job. He lost everything, yet because he did not doubt God's goodness but trusted God even in his distress, God returned fourfold for his loss. Now I'm not saying that this may necessarily happen to us in this world, but certainly the gain in the next will be great. Jesus said, Blessed are those that endure unto the end. There is no reward for the one that gives up halfway in a race, 
but it's a one that endures to the end that gains the prize. The gain shouldn't be a motivation to follow Christ, but our love for him ought to be purely because he is worthy. But often it's the selfish desires that motivates us to flee the coming judgment. But I have found that God in his goodness brings us past this immature phase as we know him more in his goodness of character, his generosity and his great love until we just love him for who he is. And that, I think, ought to be our goal, not the reward. It's important in these perilous times not to isolate oneself from other believers. For it's the interaction with others, even those of different opinions, that keeps us balanced. And that's the function of fellowship. Peter said to be moderate in all things. And I think it's being of other believers that helps us to stay balanced and also focused. In these last days, remember that Jesus has walked our walk. He knows our struggles and fears. He knows what it is to be human with all its frailties. Christ came down to our lowly estate to bring us to the God we struggle to comprehend. As it says in Hebrews 4, 15, 16. For we have not a high priest which cannot be touched with the feelings of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. So in conclusion, what Jesus said to Paul when Paul was struggling with weakness is what I think he would say to all of us who are his in these perilous times. My grace is sufficient for thee, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. A good place to be at is to have a great understanding of one's own weakness and total inability to save oneself. For this will cause us to hold even tighter to the one that can save and to trust him to do so. May we always know our need for his grace. May we have the attitude of Paul in 2 Corinthians 1, 8-10. For we would not, brethren, have you ignorant of our troubles which came to us in Asia, that we were pressed out of measure above strength, and so much that we even despaired of life. But we had descendants of death in ourselves, that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God which raiseth the dead, who delivered us from so great a debt, and doeth deliver, in whom we trust that he will yet deliver us. And finally, just for those that do not know Christ or the hope of his salvation, just let me tell you a wee story. My granddaughter, Roa, does this cute thing when she's unsure about something. She'll sit there and wring her hands together until she's worked out what to do. As she was learning to walk, I held my hand out to her 
to hold on to. And she did her hand-wringing thing for a bit, unsure of whether to trust me. But eventually, to my delight, she placed her little hand into mine, and off we went on an adventure together. She stumbling and wobbling, but as she was holding my hand, I was keeping her from doing a face plant. It was on... It was in thinking on this that I saw a spiritual parallel. Isn't that how we should be with Christ? Holding his hand, and though we may stumble and wobble a bit as we go on an adventure with him, it's him that keeps us from doing a face plant. But maybe there's someone here or is listening to the sermon who, like Ra, when she is unsure, is wringing their hands together in indecision unsure if Jesus is trustworthy, fearful of maybe he will let you down. Maybe you're wringing your hands together because you know to follow Christ is to turn from the sin you love, yet does you no good but holds you in bondage and guilt and is never satisfied. Maybe you're wringing your hands together in indecision because you know that yielding your life into the hands of another will make you vulnerable but it will mean giving control to another. Maybe you're wringing your hands together because you're unsure if Jesus is real and you'll feel a fool for trusting that which you cannot see or control. But you won't ever know if you don't reach out your hand in faith to see the reality of Christ. Be like Raw in taking my hand. Wring your hand no more. Make the decision to trust Christ and reach out your hand and take hold of the hand that is already held out to you. And see for yourself if Jesus is trustworthy. Don't take my word for it. See for yourself. Take that step of faith. And though you may stumble and wobble, you'll never face plant, for he is holding you. But if you don't reach out your hand to Jesus, you'll never know what it's like to have your sins forgiven or to know the goodness and mercy and love of the one called Christ. Lord Jesus, we just praise you for your goodness and your mercy. Lord, for the love you've shown us, for the forgiveness of sins, for the hope of eternity. Father, I pray that these words will encourage and strengthen. And Lord, whatever tomorrow brings, may we always remember them, Lord. Your love for us and that you died for us. That whatever befalls us, you are with us. You'll never leave us nor forsake us. Help us always remember the great hope, Lord, of eternity with you. And to trust you to bring us to that place. So, Father, we praise you for the good you've done for us, for making a way that is not reliant on on us at all, but is a free gift from you. So we gratefully accept that gift, Lord, and, and trust you to bring us home. So I thank you, Lord Jesus, for that. In Jesus' name, amen.